There are wild elephants in the country and numerous unicorns, which are very nearly as big. They have hair like that of a buffalo, feet like those of an elephant, and a horn in the middle of the forehead, which is black and very thick. They do no mischief, however, with the horn, but with the tongue alone. For this is covered all over with long and strong prickles, and when savage with anyone, they will crush him under their knees and then rasp him with their tongue. The head resembles that of a wild boar, and they carry it ever bent toward the ground. They delight much to abide in mire and mud. Tis a passing ugly beast to look upon, and is not in the least like that which our stories tell of as being caught in the lap of a virgin. In fact, tis altogether a different form from what we fancied. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And today, we are coming up on April 9th, which is, believe it or not, International Unicorn Day. I don't know why we have such a thing as international... Do you know the history of it, Alexa? Ian, I don't even ask that question anymore. There's an international day for everything. I wonder whether there's an international day for other fantastic creatures that we should be anticipating. For sure, we have International Unicorn Day. So you're going to know so much about unicorns by the end of our episode that you will be able to properly celebrate International Unicorn Day. And really, in you know, unicorns are the OG real fantastic beast, aren't they? Yes. If not dragons, then unicorns. <laughs> I don't know. It's a toss up. But there's the more, reality, the, the more reality to a unicorn, I'm, I'm afraid, <laughs> than to dragons. What do you mean more reality to unicorns? Well, I just told you. I just read you a historical source. I mean, uh, okay. an eyewitness account of yeah, unicorns, yeah. So, right? So t- tell me about that source. It seems like maybe it's describe. It is describing a real animal as a unicorn. It absolutely is describing a unicorn, an animal with one horn. That's what a unicorn is. And this account comes from Marco Polo, sometimes accused of being the world's greatest liar, but there there were partisan politics behind that. Marco Polo wrote this. He was describing in his memoirs, which he dictated, his visit to Sumatra in 1291. He was on his way home to Venice, his home from China, and he was kind of disappointed, as you can tell, to encounter his first real unicorns in the wild. Not as elegant as perhaps he wanted them to be. Yeah, I mean, they lick people to death and they delight (laughs) much to abide in mire and mud. In mire and mud. They're also really big. They're almost as large as as elephants, you know? I didn't know that Marco so, Polo got to Sumatra. Many people are not aware of that. I thought, and some I thought people he, think he's a liar. <laughs> and some people think he's a liar. <laughs> like, I thought he traveled the Silk um, Road. So, that doesn't go through Sumatra. You know, when he was on his deathbed, there's a story. He was asked to repudiate all the unbelievable stories that he had told in his recollections of his travels. The book is called Il Milione, or... Um, the description of the world. And he refused. He said, no, I'm not going to repudiate all the things in my book because I haven't even reported half the wonders that I've seen. The general consensus is he actually did go to these places and see 
a lot of the things that he describes seeing. Now, he describes them through the lens of a late 13th century Italian traveler. And so we have to understand that framework. But yeah, he was there in Sumatra and he saw unicorns. I think the, the word for unicorn... I mean, yeah, the, the Greek word for unicorn is monoceros, which gives us a lead into, you know, the rhinoceros, right? <gasps> Wait, are you saying that Marco Polo's unicorn was a rhinoceros? Well, it was a, it was a monoceros. <laughs> um, yes, I would suggest <laughs> well, that. If you are saying that, you would be most likely correct, because in Sumatra, they have a very small, in fact, the smallest living species of rhinoceros. Now, the Sumatran rhinoceros actually has two horns. But one of them is so small and flat that you wouldn't necessarily notice it or even call it a horn. And unlike most other living species of rhinoceros, these Sumatran rhinoceros have long red hair, which suggests that they're probably the closest surviving living relatives of the extinct woolly rhinoceros of the Ice Age. At present, there are fewer than 80 of them left alive. And oh, no. um, that means that they're a critically... Yeah, they're a critically endangered species. Basically, this is down to habitat loss, the fragmentation of their forest habitat. And so the remaining animals survive in these non-viable populations. They basically can't find mates, so they don't breed. So, um, so you're saying that the unicorn but, I mean, I think, is endangered, like so many animals. Oh, critically endangered, yeah. I mean, a rhinoceros is a unicorn. It's a rare and somewhat magical beast, and, and we're at risk of losing the last living unicorns. So unicorns became rhinoceros, and now rhinoceros becomes unicorn. Yeah. Marco Polo thought he saw a unicorn when he saw a rhinoceros, because he had this category, right? Like, unicorns are animals with one horn. And then he had this kind of animal he had never seen before, and he kind of reconciled the two. I think it's a, like, I would call it a, a heuristic, a mental shortcut to understanding something. He He's just attempting to naturalize the thing that he's seeing. Now, no, Sumatran would have looked at a rhinoceros, and said, oh, it's a unicorn, because they didn't have that whole category that Marco Polo alludes to, the white horse with a horn in the middle of its forehead that puts its head down in the lap of a virgin and allows itself to be slaughtered. I mean, that's a whole European folk tradition that would have been completely alien in Sumatra. They have a name for this animal. It's a badak in Malay. But like in a way, there's a kind of a wonderful meeting of these real animals and these fantastic beasts in this moment. Unicorns for the Middle Ages had a whole lot of baggage. It is interesting because later writers will also, in, in a way I think different than Marco Polo, but they will say things like, well, there, there are lots of unicorns like the rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there's mm -hmm. one of them, mm -hmm. right? Like it's just a, it's, you know, it's just, it's a unicorn, like yeah. very different than other unicorns, but perfectly legit unicorn. Oh yeah. And I mean, when I was a kid and unicorn crazy in the 1970s, which was one of the great eras of the unicorn, I'll, I'll have you know. I had this book about unicorns and it was illustrated and it had drawings and, you know, art, but it also had photographs of actual animals that had one horn you know, including like goats that have these horns that grow together into a spiral. So there are naturally occurring unicorns. But of course, when we talk about the unicorn, when we think about that white horse with the horn in the middle of its forehead, that is a different beast. And that's why, I mean, you were also, I believe you have said horse crazy too. Yes. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm going to suggest psychologically that in your mind, the unicorn was a horse with a horn. Absolutely. Okay. It was. 
Exactly. And they get that from antiquity. Back in, I think we've talked about uh, this writer named Theseus in the 5th century BCE. He was a doctor and a, and a traveler. I think he worked for a Persian king, Artaxerxes. And he wrote about a lot of different animals, including the manticore. But he mentions a creature like an ass with a single horn growing from the middle of its forehead. So that's like a a unicorn, right? I mean, donkey, horse, they're not exactly the same animal, but close enough. And so the image of the unicorn is there before the Middle Ages, certainly. But it's really with the physiologus and the whole bestiary tradition that the legend of the unicorn achieves this really wide dispersal. And what, what's the date really... on the physiologus? What, when was that? So the physiologus, it's a didactic Christian text. It was written in Greek sometime around in the second century CE. So Really, really early on, we have this description in the Physiologus. It tells us that the unicorn is small and shrewd because like Christ, he is humble and also smarter than the devil. Like even the most clever demon cannot outwit him. Then we also have this story that comes about that Marco Polo refers to having to do with the virgin who goes out in the woods and she sits down and the unicorn comes and puts his head down in her lap. You know, sometimes they say he leaps into her lap. And then the hunters can come along and um, kill the unicorn. In some versions, in the physiologous version of the story, for example, it's not just that he puts his head in her lap. He actually suckles from her breast. Oh my gosh. So I think you can see where this is going. She's a virgin. The unicorn is this white animal that represents Christ. He comes to her, puts his head in her lap, maybe even takes milk from her breast. She is the Virgin Mary and the unicorn is Christ, right? And then okay, okay. while this is going on, while all of this action is going on, the hunters sneak up and kill the unicorn. All right. So how does that fit into the story? So Christ becomes human, Christ is born of a virgin, and then is slaughtered mercilessly, basically. So it's a sort of figure for the incarnation and passion of Christ. And that metaphor is very, very powerful. And we see it represented in art over and over again, especially in the later Middle Ages. So in the um, Cloisters Museum in New York City, there's a wonderful set of tapestries representing the unicorn in captivity. There's another set of tapestries that doesn't actually refer to the slaughter of the unicorn, but that sort of recruits the unicorn for an exploration of the different senses. And that's the Lady and the Unicorn tapestries at the Cluny Museum in Paris. But the unicorn is very closely tied to this Christological imagery. Now, because of the unicorn's association with Christ, the horn of the unicorn becomes a kind of prophylactic, I guess you could say. You take the horn of a unicorn, if you dip it in a drink, it will turn black if it detects poison. You can also grind it up and put it in a drink to treat epilepsy, for example. The sort of magical or healing properties of the unicorn's horn are associated with its Christological imagery. So, you know, Christ can turn water into wine and drive out the serpents and all of these driving away evil functions that Christ has, especially in this combination of Christian traditions with pre-existing folk beliefs about poison, about purification, they all get mixed together in the unicorn and specifically in the horn of the unicorn. So 
is the physiological material always, does it always carry the Christological significance with it in the Middle Ages? That is to say, do they ever stop referring to the Christological stuff and just talk about the prophylactic function of the horn? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there there are times when the focus is on the sort of properties of the horn. And that becomes more true as we move towards the 14th, 15th century. Always in the background, though, of that is this Christological understanding. The other thing is that, you know, the unicorn becomes a very, very significant heraldic animal in the later Middle Ages. So it becomes a kind of trait of certain families or certain lineages and specifically has some royal implication, the lion and the unicorn, that kind of thing. And that too probably has something to do with its Christological element. You, you can't, yeah, you can never really entirely extract the Christian symbolism of the unicorn from the animal. Now, the horn, just the horn, when it's all on its own, uh, maybe, maybe that's different. I don't know. Are the the, the representations in these tapestries, the unicorn looks a lot like we would think a unicorn would look like, i.e. a horse with a horn. Is that right? Like a white um, horse with a horn. Well, yes, certainly if we're looking at um, later medieval images, you know, m- images from the 14th, the 15th century, those are the unicorns that we know today. And those are those unicorns really are the sort of pattern book for these later unicorns. But if you want to see a unicorn from, say, a 12th century manuscript, a physiologus manuscript, or a 13th century manuscript, those unicorns, they're kind of funny looking, honestly. They, I mean, they don't look like the unicorns that we expect. I guess I would say like the earliest unicorns who are really familiar to me come from maybe some later 13th century representations. But before that, they're kind of like, I mean, they're cute, but they're small. Uh And they tend to be not necessarily white always. Sometimes they're gray. They can almost look a little bit like a a dog with with cloven hooves. (laughs) You know, like gray and kind of pointy ears. But definitely a long spiraling horn. But the cloven hoofs is something, you know, horses do not have cloven hoofs. And I just pulled up a, like a, you know, fairly recent image of the royal arms, you know, the lion with the mm-hmm. lion and the unicorn, which is, you know, now the mm-hmm. the arms of, I guess, Great Britain, right? And the unicorn yeah. is Scotland. But that unicorn, even in this modern representation, has cloven hoofs. And the tail looks a lot more like a lion's tail and not like a horse's tail. The mane is pretty horsey. Yeah. You know, it's still, it's not quite, it's not really a horse with a horn. Right. And if you look at the sort of classical tradition, like let's just say Pliny, so in the first century CE, he, he tells us in his natural history that the unicorn has the body of a horse, the head of a stag, the feet of an elephant. There's that elephant foot thing again, and the tail of a boar, and that its horn is black, not white. Yeah. See, that sounds like a rhinoceros you know, to me. Yeah. But Isidore of Seville, in his etymologies, this is the seventh century, and he's you know deeply influenced by these classical sources tells us that it has a single four-foot horn in the middle of its forehead, and it often fights with elephants, and that it's extremely strong, but it doesn't give details of the feet. So in a sense, a a medieval illuminator dealing with some of these texts isn't necessarily obligated, I guess, to follow a certain pattern. I find that the the unicorns become more and more horse-like as you move into like the 14th century. I'm looking here at an image from a manuscript that's in Munich. It's a Psalter that was made in France in the 13th century for a, 
a princess of France called the Psalter of Isabella of France. And this is sort of a gray dappled unicorn. It's got its head resting, very horsey head resting on the lap of a lady wearing green. And it's being stabbed through the hindquarters with a very large spear by a young man. That, that's a, a kind of horsey unicorn. And that's almost as early as I know of an example of a very horsey looking unicorn. Before that, they, they're kind of small. That's one thing. And they tend to be a little bit more ambiguous. Like there's a Physiologus manuscript that's in Italy, but it's a copy of a much earlier Physiologus manuscript from the 14th century. But like illustrations really look like eighth or ninth century illustrations that have been copied. And that one has a, almost like a little goat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The cloven feet. Well, uh, the cloven feet could be deer too. And I, I'm thinking that it makes sense that it would become more horsey, but also that it would have some of these deer-like attributes, the size, the de- sort of delicate little cloven feet, because, you know, medieval illustrators they're within a what is sometimes called chivalric, right? Because the of the horse domination, the horse riding elite, right? right? right. So the horse is associated with a, with nobility. So if you want a noble looking animal, the horse is a way to go. And then the traditional sort of noble animal of the chase, the hunt, would be the stag. So I can right. just see them, you know, like it's that pre- it's these cultural pressures that are pulling them away from rhinocerosy, gigantic, frightening. <laughs> away from what they would perceive as sort of not noble, but more monstrous and towards yeah. the, the nobility of other animals that they are presumably depicting in tapestries as well. And I would say that even though it's a very horsey unicorn, the tail still has like a little kind of flourish on the end and it does have cloven feet in the cloisters. Um, Quite a, kind of deer like, but with a, with an odd tail. That is to say the fantastical right. nature of the unicorn is not just the horn. It's, it's the whole, it's the whole animal. Although the, when it comes to things like the allegorical, the Christological associations, I think mm-hmm. the Council of Trent, which is this reforming council held by the Catholic Church in the mid-16th mm-hmm. century, they mm-hmm. kind of downplayed the unicorn as part of religious art. So those options become less available for artists, I think, in at least in the, by right. the middle of the 16th century, that seems to be happening and you got to figure that it can't have just come up at the Council of Trent. This, there must have been a little bit of discontent about using these unicorns to do what they were doing. I think despite its sort of profoundly Christian identity, there's also something like profoundly pagan about a unicorn, right? Like it's this magical beast and it's got this horn that has all of these curative properties. And as I was saying, there's probably some, some slippage between pre-Christian traditions and the allegorical reading of the virgin and the unicorn although like with the exception of those two tapestry cycles almost all the images of unicorns from the middle ages depict the virgin and the unicorn the capture of the unicorn yeah i think maybe i mean one of the things the council of trent was trying to do is to push back on the reformation you can be sure that the fantastical nature of the unicorn and its emblematic representation is a target for the early Protestants as a kind of idolatry and something to be attacked. So I, I think they're they're probably saying it's it, it's better PR for us if we stop using unicorns in our in our representation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But that certainly did not hinder the popularity of unicorns period. It just kept them from being right. used as the, you know, the Annunciation or as representations of Christ and Mary. Yeah. 
And I should say there's one other way in which the unicorn does show up with some regularity, which is as a figure for death. Because there's this little parable that 13th century preachers like to use. In this story, the this man is being chased. He's being chased by a unicorn and a dragon. Are, he are two fantastic kind creatures, of like yes. gets away from them. Yeah, he gets away from them by climbing a tree. And this tree happens to have a lot of fruit. And he he gets distracted. He starts eating the fruit instead of thinking about how he's going to escape these two creatures. And while he's eating the fruit, rats come and gnaw at the base of the tree. And in fact, weaken the trunk so much that it falls over. And then the man falls over as well and is consumed by the dragon. And in the story, the moral of the story basically is the tree is worldly life and the dragon is obviously hell and damnation. And the unicorn is just sort of the figure, the premonition of death itself. That's quite different than the Christ image. (laughs) Yeah. Really, what the, the question we haven't resolved is this whole thing about whether it's a goat or a deer or a hybrid creature of some sort. It's got this horn growing in the middle of this, its forehead. And, and Isidore, all, all the way back in the 7th century, Isidore of Seville is telling us it's four feet long. That's a pretty big horn. That, that defies any kind of natural logic that a small animal would have a four foot long horn like that. And also, even in that book that I had as a kid, the real animals with the horns, they, they were never that big, you know? And certainly a rhinoceros horn is not that big. It's kind of stubby, right? Yeah, it is stubby. I don't so know how do much. Horns, where does this idea of the horn come from? Where does the horn come from? <laughs> well, the horn becomes the central obsession of the Renaissance, the unicorn horn, I will say. Although some of the emblematic you know, heraldic stuff continues. I mean, all the heraldry continues for sure. And then if you subtract the Christological associations of the unicorn, it gets deployed by humanists as being an emblem of chaste love and marriage. So, you know, still positive uh, thing. You could see how it kind of, you could slip from one to the other, but, you know, sort of like artistically it can be deployed by that. But meanwhile, the question about the unicorn itself and particularly the unicorn's horn continues. And it was a, should I say a unique problem for natural philosophy, because Mm -hmm. this is a case where they had no European animal, let's just say. They were not saying Mm -hmm. that there were European unicorns, which is different than dragons. They did say, you know, oh, yes, we also have, you know, the dragons are here too, right? Like they they pretty much said, look, you know, there's unicorns are out there, right? They exist, right? They're, uh, you know, like, like a rhinoceros, right? And there's, you know, like there's nothing, but there's no... You know, like yeah. this animal that's being represented in the high Middle Ages is not uh, is not really an excellent animal. But on the other hand, there's unicorn horns, actual unicorn, you know, like there's physical objects called being called the horn and the unicorn everywhere across Europe. They're so mainly they owned. Just... Well, <laughs> they figured it out. <laughs> they did figure it out by by 16 in the 1630s. So we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> But these are horn-like objects owned by, usually by royalty. They're very expensive. They're very rare. And because they are I mean, of course they're rare because they come from a non-existent animal, right? (laughs) Well, uh, there's rare and there's rare. (laughs) It's like they're common enough that, you know, in any country, a natural philosopher 
could find a unicorn horn and request to look at it and sit down with it just as you and I go into the archives and call something up. And it's a rare book, but we still, we get to see it. So you could see these, these objects. I mean, they're owned by royalty partly because they're expensive, but they're expensive partly because royalty, you know, the aristocrats want them because they're still assumed to be this universal antidote to all poison. Either they cure poison or they alert you to the presence of poison. There's all sorts of, you know, these the stories that are associated with it. And if there's one thing a Renaissance monarch who has now centralized all this power, thanks to the Renaissance, in the, in their own person worries about, it's being assassinated, often by poison, right? So like the rulers of Europe are becoming obsessed with dying from poison. And so they offer a lot of money to get these unicorn horns. And we're talking a lot of money. So a unicorn horn was supposed to be worth 11 times its weight in gold, if you had And one. are they very heavy? Well, they can be quite heavy. The natural philosophers are saying, okay, so these horns are everywhere. They're unicorn horns. We don't see these unicorns. Where do these things come from? And they're also very interested in medicine, right? So like, potentially more interested in kind of like the medical solutions within the natural world. So it becomes to be that the unicorn is sort of like all about the horn. And, you know, my favorite, Edward Topsell, the encyclopedist, early 17th century work, lists everything, the history of all four-footed beasts, yes. um, comes to the unicorn, and he has an entry for the unicorn. But he says, well, he starts by saying, we, we are now come to the history of a beast where of diverse people in every age of the world have made great question whether there be a unicorn. <laughs> so that question of like, does it even exist is right. one that he says has been around for a long time, right? Like everybody wonders about the right. unicorn. A little bit like the dragon, you know, you're going to talk about the unicorn. You first have to talk about, like, does it even exist? But then he says that it's about the horn. The virtues of the horn have been the occasion of this question. Oh. If if there hadn't been, if, there had, if the horn hadn't had any properties, okay, he says, we should as easily believe there was a unicorn in the world as we do believe there's an elephant, although not bred in Europe. So he said, if it wasn't for the horn, we just treat it as an animal that's maybe somewhere out there that we haven't really... That we're unfamiliar with, that it probably exists. Yeah. And Topsell, like other natural philosophers, doubles down on the sort of the real existence of the unicorn, although not the one that we all imagine. You know, he says, like, there's, uh, there's, there are unicorns, they're out there. And he does point to the Bible and say the Bible has unicorns in it, so they have to exist. Um, and he mm -hmm. says, I don't think, he says, I don't think the ones in the Bible are rhinoceroses, uh, like so, but maybe they are. Uh, but there's the Indian ass. He just goes on, like, talking about animals that presumably have one horn. Right. So he's making distinctions between various types of monoceroi, like... There are classes of monocerae. There's rhinoceroses, there's Indian asses, maybe there's yes. goats. Yeah. So like there's plenty of unicorns out there. We only really care yeah. about the unicorn because we are wonder about the unicorn horn. And is, exactly. is there a unicorn horn? Does it cure all these things? And like others, Topsell has experienced a unicorn horn in England. So he says, here's the, the one of the English court, right? He gives a long description of it. He says, it's so tall that the tallest man can scarcely touch the top, at least seven feet tall, and it weighs 13 pounds. So that's pounds. a lot more than, than Isidore's four feet. So apparently unicorn horns have gotten longer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And Topsel says like, huh, if you're going to imagine the animal that carried this thing, it had to be no smaller than a large ox in order to carry this gigantic yes. horn. And it's not the, uh -huh. it's not just the horn in England that's big. There's, I mean, there's a lot of them. One of them is supposed to be, I think the one given to Charlemagne was supposed to be nine feet long. Imagine the animal carrying that horn and it doesn't seem like it's going to leap into the lap of a virgin. 
<laughs> if, if it does, there's not going to be much of her left yeah. by the time it does finishes leaping. Uh, so there's a little bit of a question, of like what animal has this thing? And they're looking around for animals that would have this horn. And then you get a guy named Bartolin, who's this Danish phys- physician. He's an early natural philosopher. And he says, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to look at, I'm going to go around Europe and I'm going to look at all the horns that we have. And, you know, he looks at all the horns. He does notice that they're not all the same, that, that presumably there's a bunch you know, like they're not the same object, but there are a lot that are the same. Oh. And Bartolin concludes that whatever they are, they are not horns and they do not come from a hoofed animal. So period. On what basis does he make that conclusion? By comparison to deep... the horns of Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I guess He's he... got horns from horns all over. And antlers and... Yeah. And, and you know, uh, yeah. like for one thing, they're they're way harder than any horns. But then he dies in sixteen twenty nine and he kind of leaves it there. You know, he says like, oh, I'm sure there's a unicorn. We, just, man, we don't know what it is yet, but it's not a hoofed animal. Don't know what it is. I'm sure it cures all these things. It's super fantastic. It's, it's, an, it's a total antidote for everything, only not from a hoofed animal. And then he dies. Mm-hmm. And then comes along his brother-in-law. I love this guy's name. His name is Oli Worm. I think he made that up. He's <laughs> a super famous physician and natural philosopher. Oli Worm, for sure. <laughs> There's a great picture of him, a painting where it's him and his three wives that he had over time, all of his children and his grandchildren, uh, or as I like to call them, the little worms. And then on the side is Christ. And then next to Christ are his four faculty mentors from his student days as the four apostles. I can't even. (laughs) It's a great picture. And he's, he's kind of a fun looking guy. He's kind of a, he's, he's got chubby cheeks and he looks like he would be great fun to talk to. He, he was a super collector, but he takes up the, you know, he takes up the challenge, find the unicorn. And, you know, he starts from the idea that, okay, they're not the horns of a hoofed animal. And he happened to have in his collection, the skull of a marine animal called a narwhal, which is a marine mammal that has a long tooth. It sticks out of its head. So if you know what a narwhal looks like, you can find pictures of it. He had essentially a narwhal horn. And he said, it's attached to the skull. I know it's not. (laughs) I know this is not a hoofed animal. I know this is a whale. It came to me as like, you know, a marine mammal. And it looks an awful lot like these horns. So he went around and he compared everything to his narwhal horn. And he said, most of the horns that I'm finding are narwhal horns. Just that's it. I'm sorry. The unicorn is in narwhal. End of story. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, he was a famous collector, right? Like he had yes. this curiosity cabinet, cabinet or whatever oh, yeah, you yeah. call it. And the horn was in there with yeah. this skull attached to it. Fantastic. Yeah. He had a lot of like marine and aquatic animals in that collection too. So he had plenty of comparative material. Yeah. He was really fascinated, I think, with the natural world. Uh, among other things, he had a pet great auk. Um, the great auk is now extinct. If you read the story of the extinction of the great auk, it will like make your blood boil. But this is early days yet. And he had this auk and he did a picture of it, put it in his book. And it's the only illustration we have from life for this extinct animal. All right. So this, the question remained for him. So now I know that they come from the narwhal. The question is still, it does the narwhal horn cure all poisons, right? Is it the universal antidote to everything? So he decided he would explore this. And this is where you're going to become less happy with Oli Worm because uh-huh. he did essentially animal experimentation. He took kittens and he fed them oh. arsenic. And then when they became ill, he fed them 
ground up narwhal horn to see whether it fixed them. Oh, and let oh. me guess. Yes? It didn't work. No, it did work. <laughs> what? I did. Yes. Get the out. That it works. So <laughs> the only conclusion that I guess we might come to is that he didn't really poison them very much, you know, or that he didn't use arsenic, like whatever it is, he didn't do a very good job of poisoning these kittens, which is why they recovered when they ate the narwhal horn. But for whatever reason, he discovered the source of all these horns, which is his answer is the answer that we still have today, right? These are narwhal horns all over Europe. We don't think that you're kittens from arsenic. (laughs) Yes. Yes. They're a tooth, right? And the narwhal is actually not even a whale. It's a porpoise, but... Oh, well, cetacean, <laughs> right? Go back to our strange fish It's a sea episode. monster. <laughs> it's a sea monster, yeah. All right. Okay, so then you come to Thomas Brown, whom we have mentioned before, who wrote this book called Pseudodoxia Epidemica, sort of the epidemic of false knowledge. And he doesn't have an entry on the unicorn. He has an entry on unicorn's horn. Oh. So like he's going to... He's going to address this. And this is 1646, so it's not much later. But he mentions Oli Worm's work. He incorporates that right. work. He's clearly been reading the, the most recent things. He points out a whole bunch of things. He does say, by the way, we affirm there are many kinds of unicorns. And he mentions you know, the Indian ass, mm-hmm. the rhinoceros, the oryx, which they thought had one horn, although it does not. But he also mentions beetles, right? <laughs> of course, there's unicorns. Look at these beetles. Oh, so for him, true enough. Yeah, just there's means, a unicorn beetle, yeah. Yes. Anything with one horn is a unicorn. But he says that's not really the point. The point is, like, is there this animal that has this magical horn or not? And he says, the first problem is that the unicorn itself in the ancient world is not uniformly described, right? Some people say it's big. Some people say it's small. Some people say it's mean. Some people say it's docile. Some people say it has the feet of elephants. Some people say, you know, like, so he says, whatever they're describing, it's not the same thing, right? So, like, you don't even know what you got. And then... The horns that are described in these sources don't match the horns all of, you know, that you know that are currently called unicorn horns. Right, right. So they describe horns in some of these ancient sources, but the descriptions of the color and the texture and everything don't match the horns that are lying around that you could find. And then he also says the horns that you will discover that people will produce as unicorn horn, you know, come and check out my unicorn horn are actually from different animals. So some of them are, he says, uh, some of them are like walrus teeth, right? Um, some of them are stones mm-hmm. that people have said, you know, they're shaped like a, a a horn. So people have said, look at my unicorn horn, and you get to them and you think this is just a stone. The unicorn horn that people are using to fix poison is not even the same thing. And then most of the things that are called unicorn's horn, he says, aren't even horn. That is to say, they're harder mm-hmm. They're, you know, they don't match the description of any horn from any known horned animal. And this is where he, he mentions the narwhal and says, it's a tooth, right? It's not a horn at all. It's a, it's so, a he, so he basically just bombs the whole idea of the magical unicorn. He's yes. a real killjoy. And then he says, okay, but what about like, let's say, you know, like we, uh, we pick one of these and say like, it's, this is the horn. This is the horn that, that, that's magical and does things, whatever one we pick. But he says, look, none of the ancients ascribed all the antidotal powers to it that mm-hmm. we think are there. And when they were describing horns that are the antidote, they were clearly describing horns that aren't the horns that we have. They were mm. describing a horn that maybe came from, I don't know, some distant animal that had a single horn, but like we don't have it. Huh. And then he also says the claims that okay. are made about the power of this horn are just completely extravagant and they're multiplying out of control. They just can't be real. And he also says there's no mechanism, there, there's no way that you could imagine that the horn would cure all the different 
poisons because they all have different mechanisms. They do their work by different means. So there's no way that you could imagine why this single thing would cure all of them. Right. Although he says like, maybe it's useful. Maybe it'll cure something. I mean, we have heart's horn, which is distilled deer horn that they use for treating various things. I don't know whether it's useful or not. Mm -hmm. It's basically ammonia. Uh, but he says, you know, like maybe it'll, maybe it's I, helpful in some it, minor medical way, but it can't cure all poison. Right, right. I believe hartshorn, because of the ammonia content, was just basically used to shock people out of a faint, you know, Smelling you salts. carried it around in yeah. a little. Yeah. 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 Not, not yeah. a magical antidote to all poisons known to, known to humanity. So mm -hmm. Brown just uses his logical discussion of the evidence to conclude that unicorn horn cannot cure anything. This is 1646, but mm -hmm. people were selling unicorn, ground unicorn horn, like into the 18th century. Mm -hmm. So the popular belief continues for sure. One thing we haven't talked about here is that the unicorn at the center of this discussion that we're having is clearly a European unicorn. I did come across one, I guess, medieval story, at least it's repeated in a Renaissance source, which is how I found it. But this is attributed mm -hmm. to a Byzantine writer around 1100. And this is about the connection with the young virgin. And this writer mm -hmm. says that Indian and Ethiopian hunters, knowing this, knowing that the, the, that the unicorn is attracted to virgins, they mm -hmm. hunt it by taking a beautiful young man, cross-dressing him as a virgin, mm -hmm. covering him in perfume and setting him out there. I don't know why they need to do that, but the unicorn is attracted by the scent of the perfume, comes up, lays its head at the lap of the young man, who then reveals himself as a hunter. Yeah, you just don't want to put the real virgins at The risk. real virgin in danger. And yeah. then what they do is they come up and they cut the horn off and let the unicorn go free. Nice. That was the first separation of the horn from the unicorn, should we say, in the Byzantine source. We've mentioned this before, that medieval real fantastic beasts and early modern real fantastic beasts have an enduring presence in fantasy literature. Yeah, still very positive, right? Rainbows and unicorns are all supposed to be unusual good things. I, I kind of want to see a fantasy book where there's the enormous, angry, dangerous unicorn of death. That, yeah, that licks you to death. With its, you know, seven foot horn. Very fierce. Contradict all the associations with unicorns. Yeah, and no rainbows. Game of unicorns coming soon. Deeply scarred unicorn hunters. <laughs> it's like the Witcher meets Game of Thrones, <laughs> only instead right. of the dragons, there are unicorns. Yes. Yes, <laughs> that's what the Witcher needs is a, a unicorn episode. <laughs> okay. All right. Well. Thank you for joining well, us happy, on Unicorn happy Day. Happy International, yeah, happy International Unicorn Day, everyone. <laughs> yeah. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. Mm -hmm.